and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. U-turn if you want to. And Liz Truss didn't want to, but she did. The new PM wasn't the first politician to have to ditch a key policy, and she won't be the last. With me to talk about U-turns is Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome to The Bunker, Tim. Hi, and thanks for having me. First off, as a scholar of Tory Prime Ministers, were you surprised when the Tory members chose her over Rishi Sunak? Not really. I think there was a lot of resentment towards Sunak among the membership for, as they saw it, knifing Boris Johnson in the back. And for all the twists and turns of the second stage of the leadership contest, I think it was always pretty clear that they were going to go for trust rather than Sunak. As a result, I think also she was prepared to tell them what they wanted to hear, whereas Rishi Sunak, you know, told them a few uh, hard truths, which we've uh, later learned uh, they might have listened to. But at the time, I think, you know, they were going for someone who, as they saw it, represented true conservatism and who hadn't stabbed Boris Johnson in the back. And, and that was Liz Truss. And someone who would stick to her word. Do you think they're relieved or disappointed that she changed her mind over the 45p tax ban? Well, funnily enough, I'm not sure that most Conservative Party members were particularly wedded to that particular policy. And certainly, I think when they saw what it did to the government's credibility, in particular, obviously to sterling and then to guilt and therefore to interest rates and, and mortgage rates. We have to remember that about a third of all Conservative Party members do have mortgages. I think they would have been prepared to see it dropped. And to be honest, I think those who follow politics carefully enough, and you know, some Conservative members will do, I think they will have realised that she simply had no choice in the end because too many of her MPs had made it clear that they weren't going to vote for it when it went through Parliament. So I think, to be honest, that U-turn was a case of discretion being the better part of valour. Um, it was either dropping it now and taking the embarrassment on the chin or a complete humiliation on the floor of the House of the Commons. And I think that would have been a lot worse. Whenever there's talk of U-turns, one thing always gets quoted, the Margaret Thatcher speech that we clipped at the beginning of this pod. It was at the Conservative Party conference in Brighton in 1980, and for many of her supporters, it defined her premiership. But did Thatcher U-turn, or did she successfully create the narrative, and it may have been a myth that she never would? Well, actually, she didn't need to that much because she was a much more cautious and canny politician than a lot of people give her credit for, or at least remember. She is remembered, particularly in, if you like, conservative iconography, as someone who never changed their mind. But that was very much a feature of Margaret Thatcher in the latter days of her premiership. And particularly, for example, when it came to the poll tax, when perhaps she should have changed her mind early on. She was very careful not to take things too quickly in marked contrast in some ways to Liz Truss. So we all remember the miners' strike, for example, in the mid-1980s. The fact was Margaret Thatcher gave in to the miners earlier on in that decade, the better to prepare for the strike next time around. It's easy to forget that kind of thing. I, I think what this impression of her as not for turning is, is based on is partly that speech, you're right, but partly... It's down to the 1981 budget, where much to the amazement and shock of many economists, she decided actually to ramp up taxes and reduce spending in the face of a recession, which was certainly not what governments had been expected to do, nor had done over the past few decades. That 
earned her an awful lot of flack. Uh, many people worried that you know that might actually see the the downfall of the government but in the end as thatcherites would see it anyway that came good but in some ways that's a marked contrast to the budget that we've just seen because what mrs thatcher was doing then was raising taxes in order to you know balance the budget in as much as she could so a very big contrast with truss and uh, quarteng she famously didn't U-turn over the poll tax or the community charge as the conservative party preferred to call it was that arrogance? Was it hubris? Or was it a genuine conviction on her part that the policy was the right one? I think that's a really good question, Ros. I think, to be honest, uh, I'm going to give perhaps a predictable answer. It was a bit of all three, really. I think by that stage, accounts of Margaret Thatcher's behaviour by those who were closest to her do stress that she was beginning perhaps to lose her grip on political reality. She'd won three elections on the trot. I think she saw herself as almost invincible and therefore was convinced that what she could get through was basically what she wanted. The poll tax, I think, made sense to her because it was based on the individual's ability to pay. And of course, she was all about the individual. It was also, she thought, a way of hobbling overspending Labour councils and making them unpopular. And I think she genuinely thought that in the end, despite some early problems, it would become popular. Most of her colleagues, indeed some of those who are most closely associated with the Thatcherite project, thought that it would be a disaster. It was variously described as you know, a, a heat-seeking missile aimed at Tory voters, as something that you know would actually do for the party unless it was changed. But she just simply wouldn't listen. And her problem was that you know, because she wouldn't listen, because this was such a flagship policy for her, the Conservative Party had no real alternative if it wanted to ditch the poll tax than to ditch her as well. And and that is partly why, and, and not just because of Europe, she was defenestrated by her own MPs. The Guardian once did a count of U-turns, and it claimed that there was a climb down every 29 days under the coalition government, 2010-2015. Every 52 days under Gordon Brown, but just every 412 days under Tony Blair. <laughs> and under Boris Johnson, there seem to be about five U-turns a week. But are they getting more common? Uh, well, I mean, given what you've just told me there, I, I think you know, we, we could dispute the, the numbers. Perhaps we haven't had a, a, enough data, typical political scientists to say, to, to really talk about that long-term trend. I think they probably have become rather more likely in as much as voters are not as tribal as they used to be and therefore can't be relied upon to carry on supporting a government come what may, even if they voted for it last time around. So in as much as parties and governments now pay more attention perhaps to movements in opinion polls, they're likely to be perhaps a little bit more sensitive to what voters are thinking there are more floating voters out there, if you like. So, you know, there is a rationale, I think, for for an increase in, in U-turns, yes. Is it perhaps that the media cycle just moves so much faster now? Yeah, that could be something to do with it as well. I mean, there is so much more media scrutiny on any decision made that, yes, uh, you know, particularly with social media now, I think, you know, people are almost responding and governments are sometimes almost responding in real time. So that could be part of it as well. Is it the media that tends to drive U-turns or is it MPs? 
It's very difficult to separate the two, I think. Uh, I mean, coming back to your last question, I think MPs are very media savvy these days. They pay a great deal of attention to uh, you know, what is going on on social media. And still, despite their declining circulation, the newspapers, they also obviously pay a great deal of attention to opinion polls. And we're getting an awful lot of those nowadays. I mean, you know, if you think back to, say, the 1950s, we had one opinion poll a month, basically, back then. Now, <laughs> I mean, barely a day goes by without one opinion poll or another coming out. So I think politicians, you know, have a lot more information about what the public are thinking of particular policies. You know, opinion pollsters used to just ask, you know, a few questions about whether people would, would vote for the government, you know, if there were a general election tomorrow. Now they ask all sorts of questions in real time about particular issues. So I, I think there's a lot more opportunity for people who want to mobilise against a particular decision to make it very obvious that the public is on their side rather than on the government's. As a journalist, I've noticed that hacks always find a U-turn particularly satisfying. It's a kind of gotcha moment, mm. which reinforces their own importance and they feel that they're channeling the popular will in some you know, very profound way. But are they? Well, I mean, I think there is an argument to say that sometimes the media does operate as a so-called fourth estate, as a, as a watchdog. We have elections once every four or five years in a normal cycle. We seem to have had a lot more recently. And therefore, you know, there is a role, not just for Parliament, to scrutinise the government and hold them to account. So I think it's, it's perfectly fair that the journalists want to do that. I suppose in some ways it is also a measure of the power of a particular outlet or, or a particular journalist even that they are able to influence government policy. So yes, it's, it's not surprising in some ways that um, journalists make a great deal uh, of U-turns. I think the interesting thing is that you know there's there's not a great deal of research published actually on on whether they are seen as a good thing or a bad thing by the public. There's been some polling by YouGov fairly recently, which suggests that actually the public is rather more inclined to look upon U-turns with a degree of sympathy than anger. I think that's understandable. I mean, most of us in our own lives make decisions that we come to regret, and if we can reverse them, <laughs> we very often do. So I, I think, you know, in as much as we as the public apply that same logic to politicians, that makes sense. once wrote that nothing David Cameron ever U-turned on could compare to Ted Heath's record on U-turns. Tell us a bit about that era and some of the big turnarounds that he had to make. Well, many people forget, partly because Mrs Thatcher in some ways promoted that myth, that Ted Heath was in some ways a proto-Thatcherite rather than the, you know, the kind of wet one nation Tory that sometimes he's portrayed as, and as I said, was portrayed as partly because she wanted to distinguish herself by Margaret Thatcher. The Conservatives came into power in 1970 on a pretty radical manifesto. They were going to cut public spending. They were going to reorganise departments. They weren't going to do any deals with the trade unions. There wasn't going to be any statutory incomes policy. They weren't going to try and control prices, etc., but as soon as the economy ran into trouble after trying to implement some of those policies, after about two years, the government completely reversed course. It actually started to try and control wage rises, tried to control prices, 
did deals with um, trade unions, gave in to trade unions. It started spending an awful lot of money to try and get the economy going because unemployment had shot up to over a million. And we got the so-called barber boom that people have been talking about recently and you know, comparing that with um, what Kuateng did. So Ted Heath, you know, it wasn't just one or two policies. It was really the, the kind of whole approach of this government that completely turned around after a couple of years. So, you know, I, I think he, he does in some ways deserve to be called the, the undisputed king of, of the U-turn in British politics. What was the first U-turn that perhaps we can think of? I've heard about the Corn Laws as being a sort of classic <laughs> one, but are there ones even before that perhaps that you can oh, think of? I mean, uh, there, there, there must be. Uh, I mean, I think the Corn Laws is, a, is, is probably the first that, you know, would make most sense to people. And that was where you know, the, the British government for a, a very long time essentially helped the agricultural interest in Britain by keeping you know, prices artificially high by use of tariffs, etc. And then, of course, you had the Great Famine in Ireland. And partly in reaction to that, Robert Beale, the Conservative Prime Minister, decided to get rid of the, the Corn Laws and get rid of those tariffs and allow prices to fall, which, of course, hit the agricultural interest very hard and actually, of course, split the Conservative Party completely with Benjamin Disraeli helping to lead the other side. So I guess that was the most dramatic U-turn in, in, in the 19th century. In the 20th century, I mean, there, there were a few and you know, you can go back beyond Ted Heath. You can look, for example, at Harold Wilson promising that he wouldn't devalue the pound when he came in in 1964, fighting not to do so for three years and then eventually having to give up. There was a big devaluation then, which, you know, hit the government really, really hard, particularly its reputation for economic competence and probably helped Ted Heath actually win the election in 1970. We talked a bit about U-turns on the Oh God, What Now podcast this week. David Gork talked about Theresa May's so-called dementia tax which was mm. canned after outrage that it would mean people's kids paying for their care after their death. Mm. He still thinks that policy was the right one. Does good policy sometimes get canned wrongly after a backlash? Oh, I think that must be true. I mean, you only have to think of crime and punishment, I think, where some you know, reasonably liberal moves on the part of justice secretaries or home secretaries have been floated and then almost immediately been canned by the government after that happened. I can think of Ken Clark, for example, suggested that you know, people might be given shorter sentences if they were to plead guilty, partly because you know the desire to reduce the, the prison population. That, in many ways, would seem to make sense to a lot of people. But, you know, the public reaction to that was outraged because most of the public, you know, like longer, harsher sentences. And David Cameron almost immediately stamped on that particular idea. So I, I think, you know, it's very often the case in a situation and in a, an issue area, if you like, where the public have very strong feelings. Anyone who tries to go against that consensus, even if that consensus is irrational or nonsensical, will find it very, very hard not to have his or her ideas slapped down by a prime minister who's much more conscious, if you like, of the electoral implications of any decision. On the other hand, some policies are just rubbish ones. I mean, well, what has deservedly got the boot in the history of U-turns? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you'd have to say trying to defend, you know, the parity of the pound, you know, on the international exchanges when clearly the markets are betting against it is always a bad idea. We saw that, as I've already said, in 1967, but we saw it very, very clearly, for example, in uh, 1992 and Black Wednesday when 
Norman Lamont, who was in charge, obviously, then of interest rates, jacked them up to, I think it was 15 or 16% in order to try and defend the value of the pound and keep it in the exchange rate mechanism, only to find that you know he still couldn't do it uh, and eventually allowed the pound essentially to float, which set the stage actually for an economic recovery on the part of the UK. Not that it did the Conservative government very much good, but it did uh, mean that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown inherited a pretty well-functioning economy by the time they took over in 1997. I was thinking about this when I was watching uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible on Monday night, because really, that's the story of a group of people who really should have U-turned and were given the opportunity to U-turn and decide not to not to burn a number of women mm. uh, for being witches numerous times and failed to do so. Maybe what's, what interests, what fascinates us most about U-turns is that they get to the heart of who our leaders should be and what combination of stubbornness and pragmatism we want in them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. I mean, we do want pragmatic leaders, but we also want leaders with values. And we also want leaders who occasionally will make decisions which are unpopular, but hold out the hope of some long-term improvement. So there's a degree to which we admire resilience that sometimes shades into stubbornness. But on the other hand, it's never a good idea for leaders to buy into you know, this sunk cost fallacy that because you've pursued a policy for X number of years, that, you know, you have to keep going with it, despite all the evidence suggesting that it's actually not working out for you. I mean, it's something, again, you know, that we all do perhaps in our personal lives sometimes. We, perhaps we invest too much in a relationship that's not really going anywhere, simply because it's gone on for a very long time. So it's, it's completely understandable that people do that, but it isn't a particularly rational thing to to do but because i think you know politicians mostly go into politics because they do believe in stuff believe it or not you know they do actually find it even harder than most of us to to give up a policy or, or, or an idea when the evidence suggests that it's time to let it go without taking too many hostages of fortune it's a possibility that keir starmer will be the next pm or the next pm but one perhaps not a probability but a possibility if he does become prime minister do you think he'll be more of a pragmatist willing to flex and change or do you think he'll be more stubborn, more likely to stick to his guns? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think Keir Starmer is a man who plans things. I mean, I think anyone who knows anything about his legal career tells us that he was always very meticulous. He always you know, had a sense of direction. He didn't necessarily reveal his hands straight away, but let things play out until it got to the point where he could, as it were, strike. So I would have thought that he will probably, if he can, avoid getting into situations where he's committed himself before he needs to. And that's one course of action that does often lead to an embarrassing U-turn. I mean, I think coming back to your, your previous question about this, you know, mixture of stubbornness, you know, ideologically driven sometimes and um, flexibility. Although uh, he's seen as a centrist, I don't think that necessarily means that he has no ideas or no firm beliefs. I think he's very different in that respect to Boris Johnson, who obviously executed a lot of U-turns, but was able to because, well, he never really believed in anything but himself. I think, you know, Keir Starmer, like most politicians who aren't like Boris Johnson, is going to 
you know, let himself be guided by a set of values which will inform some policies. Some of those policies won't work out and some of those policies will have to be reversed. So I, I would have thought that Keir Starmer will be more like most politicians and therefore we will see some U-turns, just not as many as we saw perhaps under under Boris Johnson. Hopefully, but this does look in some ways unlikely. He won't be in the terrible economic circumstances that uh, Ted Heath found himself and therefore have to produce a major U-turn in the way that um, destroyed his premiership. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. You're finishing a book on the Conservative Party after Brexit, I think. Is it out soon? It is out in the spring, but uh, <laughs> we're slightly worried about the cover at the moment. Uh, it features Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss. Might have to feature a and other. And I am certainly going to have to write a postscript just before it gets published, I think. <laughs> Good luck with that. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Times are hard for many people right now, but if you can spare two quid a month or a bit more, if you feel it can, you can help us carry on making podcasts. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Rees, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.